You doing all right today? Everybody good? Let's try it one more time because these people are doing good. Y'all are struggling. Everybody doing okay today? There we go. Hey, welcome today. My name is Jeremy and I'm the campus pastor here. And uh, my wife and I have four kids. I say this a lot. I tell stories about my kids. If I didn't have kids, I wouldn't have anything to preach about. But we have four kids. Cooper's eight. He'll be nine in a couple weeks. Branson is six. Cooper's in third grade. Branson is in the first grade. Uh, Tucker is four, and he's still at home with mom. And Kinley is two. Little girl, three older brothers. She may never get to ever go away from home because mama loves having her home. But we have four kids. And the fun thing about watching my kids grow up is that I get to watch their development. I get to watch these new things that they get to do. So like Branson, our first grader, is he, he's learning to read. Obviously, he learned some kindergarten foundational things last year. And um, he's continuing to learn to read this year. But they have these things called sight words. And so he has these list of sight words that he's supposed to study, you know, pretty much every night or every week. And he's supposed to go through those. The reason that he has sight words is because not all of those words can be sounded out and be, you know, read correctly so that he could understand those. And so he has to understand them just by sight, know what that word is so that he doesn't have to stop and sound that word out. So I'm going to throw a couple of these up on the screen. Let's work together this morning. Everybody say this word. Right. You said was, except if you sound it out, it goes something like this. Was, right. So when Branson sees this word on his sight word list, he always goes. Was, right. Which you laugh about, but makes complete sense. He's taking the skills that they've given to him, the sounds of letters, and he's sounding that word out. That's why he has to know it by sight. So he looks at that and he goes. Was. Except when he reads that word in a book and in context, you know, he says, I was in the, no, that's not right. I was, right, because he reads it in context. But at first sight, he's seeing that that word is, is not how it sounds out. Another word, let's throw this one up there. Another word, everybody say this word. Good, except that he learned a trick that O-O makes the sound ooh. So when he sees this word, he goes, g-ood, good, Right? Which I think is part of a cheese or something. I'm not sure. But he says, so then he says, it was good. And I laugh. I think that's hilarious, right? I laugh at my children's expense. And so when he sees that word in context, though, he says, you know, it was good. No, it was good, right? Because Branson has gotten frustrated over the last year plus as he's learned to read and he's tried to figure out how to read. He's gotten a little frustrated trying to figure out all these rules that they give him. Right. I before E, except after C and sometimes in Y or I, I'm not sure all the rule. I can't remember. There's something like that. And they haven't really been teaching him that. But that one always confused me. So I thought I'd get that off my chest. But there are a lot of rules. Right. When you learn other languages, there are some like really definitive rules when you learn those languages. But you go to English and there's like nine of the same word that means some of the same things. and You have to determine where it fits and when it fits and how it fits. Right. And he's gotten really frustrated. And to this point, he hasn't said, Dad, I want to stop going to school. I don't want to go to school anymore. I don't want to read. But we have had to help him along a little bit to figure out how to figure out the rules, figure out the, the, the techniques, the sight words, and then the words in context so that he could continue to read because it's important for him. My son Cooper, who is almost nine, he's in the third grade. He, he struggled a little bit with reading, but now he's turned into a very good reader. But one of his passions, really his only passion, is the game of baseball. 
Cooper loves baseball. He lives, eats, and breathes baseball. He plays baseball in rec leagues in the spring, in the summer, in the fall. And then he comes home from those games and watches baseball on television. And if there is no baseball on television anywhere, he takes my iPhone and he comes to the MLB at bat app that we have just for him, really, he and I. And he watches highlights of former games and he reads the news articles about who the Braves are going to pick up and get rid of Dan Ugla because he's terrible and all these things that he wants to do. And he's telling me, he told me that we got B.J. Upton last fall. And I mean, all these incredible things. He loves it. But Cooper just transitioned from coach pitch for seven and eight-year-olds. This fall, he he transitioned up to kid pitch. That's a pretty big transition. It's one of the biggest transitions in the game of recreational developmental baseball because you go from the coach pitching and trying his best to hit your bat as he throws the ball to kid pitch who are just trying not to kill anybody because they, they're just learning to pitch too. And so they're just rearing back and, you know, it may go near the plate. It may go near the batter. It may hit the fence behind there. It may go over the screen. It, it's, you never know. Cooper's a pretty good baseball player and he loves the game of baseball. And he's had some pretty good seasons the last few seasons of, of coach pitch. But as we transitioned from coach pitch to kid pitch, he was pretty, pretty apprehensive. I mean, he, he had some, some fear about hitting off of kids. He was fine until he watched the Braves play a couple weeks ago and saw Jason Hayward get hit in the face with a pitch and break part of his jaw because Cooper then said, what if they hit me in the face, right? Because now he's got this fear that he's going to get hurt. And I'm trying to convince him, none of the kids in your league throw that fast. None of the kids, you know, but to him, it's the reality. And so I try to help him a little bit. I try to convince him. I, I don't want to say I lie because that would mean that I'm a terrible person. But I, I do try to bend the truth a little bit and say, listen, you can hit every kid in this league, right? Nobody's better than what you can hit. I, I just try to give him some encouragement and help him along so that he sees that, hey, I can hit in this kid pitch league because I want him to continue to do what he loves to do. And I don't want fear to be the reason that he quits. If he loses a passion for it, I'll never force him to play. But I don't want fear to be the reason that he stops. And so as a parent, I'm trying to figure out how do I balance this tension? How do I manage this to help him continue on in his endeavor to play baseball? When I was younger, I was probably, I don't know, seven or eight myself. My mom was teaching her sister, my aunt, how to drive a manual transmission, a stick shift. Anybody ever done that? You ever done that with anybody you love? You want to kill them, right? And I remember sitting in the back of that car. And, and, and honest to goodness, like I, I had really elevated my mom. She was right next to Jesus, right next to God there. I mean, in her spirituality. But I'd never heard some of the words that came out of her mouth as she yelled at her sister about what to do with the clutch and the brake and the gas and the manual. Tra- I, I mean, it was, it was really awful. But what was she doing? She was teaching her something so that my aunt would have a car to drive. The only car she had to drive was a manual transmission. And so if she didn't know how to drive that, she couldn't drive anywhere. And so my mom was taking it upon herself to teach her how to drive. And so, you know, I just, I look back on those experiences. I look back in my own life and I see that there are things that we go through sometimes that are really about testing us and training us and, and teaching us some lessons that we got to have moving forward. And, and I look at, again, my own kids and I wish sometimes there was a manual on how to raise them, right? Some of you parents who have kids much older than my kids, you go, yeah, there is no manual, right? And the manual's wrong. The ones who wrote it, wrote, wrote it, broke it. But I think when we look at this, we want to see this kind of how-to guide, this manual for what we should do. And that's really what we're going to look at over the next few weeks is how do we live this life that we're supposed to live? We're going to start a new series today called Blueprint for Life. And it really is, hopefully for us, one of these how-to guides. Maybe, maybe it's some, some training things, some teaching principles, some guiding principles for how we should live. One or two more quick stories before we jump into this. <clears throat> 
My wife likes to buy furniture, and so I try to put that furniture together. And for Christmas, our daughter Kinley got a, a little kitchen set. And, and it was supposed to be very difficult. I mean, if you looked at the reviews, there were men who had actually gotten divorced over putting this kitchen set together for their daughters. And, and so I was very careful to read the instructions. There was actually a manual for putting it together. And every little screw and every little wooden piece and board, it was all to scale. I mean, it was incredible. And so what should have taken me like nine days actually just took me a couple hours to put this thing together. Have you ever bought anything from Ikea, though? Have you ever bought anything from Ikea? It's that Swedish Satanistic place downtown. We like that place. They also have some how-to guides, except there are no words. There are only pictures. And the people that drew the pictures can't draw. The stuff that you bought doesn't look like anything on the piece of paper that came with that stuff on how to put it together. So there are things in my house right now that are put together backwards of the way they're supposed to be put together. Because as I tried to read this, I'm like... Is this right side up? Is it upside down? I don't even have that board. I don't know where this stuff goes, right? And so sometimes when we read how-to guides, sometimes when we read the Bible, we, we, we might read a piece of Scripture, and that was actually upside down, which is funny because I just said that. We might read a piece of Scripture and we go, wow, this directly, very specifically speaks to me about how I should live. I mean, you may read something very, very specifically, like when someone came to Jesus one time and said, what's the most important thing? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus very specifically states to him with words and pictures and everything. Love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, you and I can take that as a how-to guide. We can take that and go, okay, I can attempt to do that. I may not succeed every single time, but that's what I'm going to set my life toward. I'm going to love God with everything that I am and I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. And then we can read other parts of scripture that we think the people from Ikea wrote, right? It doesn't make as much sense. And so we really have to kind of dig into it. We have to look at the context. What's around it? What's, what's the writer talking about? And that's really where we're going to be for the next six weeks. We're going to be in the book of James. If you've got your Bible, you can flip there. The book of James is in the New Testament. It was the earliest book that we have of the New Testament writings, which means that of all the books that are written that you have in the New Testament, beginning with the book of Matthew and going all the way to the book of Revelation, it was the book that was written the closest to the life of Jesus. Because all of the books of the New Testament were written after Jesus passed away. And so they were all recordings of what happened in the life of Jesus or in the subsequent events after the life of Jesus. But the book of James was written closest to the events of the life of Jesus Christ. It was written by a guy who has a pretty good background to be able to write about the things of Jesus. The guy that wrote it, his name was aptly James, and he was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, he was the half-brother because we understand that Jesus came from Mary, but she was made pregnant by God himself. And so Joseph was his, his stepdad, right? And so James was one of Jesus' siblings that was actually born from the union of Joseph and Mary. And so James was, according to what we read here, we believe the oldest of Jesus' siblings. And so he, he kind of grew up with Jesus. Not kind of, he grew up with Jesus. He watched Jesus grow and live And in that, we see in John chapter 7 that James and the other brothers of Jesus did not believe the things that Jesus was saying when he was doing ministry on earth. Anybody have a brother? If your brother came to you and said, I'm the son of God, you can't get to heaven unless you go through me. You would probably struggle as well because you know that your brother is not a nice person. He treated you mean, maybe whatever he did, or he, he grew up in the same house you did. What makes him special, right? Some of your brothers probably think they're the son of God. I don't know. 
But James didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And so as we look over the next six weeks, we're really going to read about a guy who had this transformation in life. We read in the book of 1 Corinthians that after Jesus went to the cross and then he was raised from the tomb, we see that James was one of the guys that Jesus appeared to. I mean, Jesus went to the cross and he died. He was put in the tomb and he raised from the dead three days later. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that he appeared to as many as 500 people before he ascended back to heaven for that, for that final time during that season. And James was one of the guys that Jesus showed up to. I, I don't know what that moment looked like. But I, I almost think that James, being the brother of Jesus, had just watched his brother die on a cross. Whether he believed that Jesus was who he said he was or not, his brother had just been killed. I have to believe that there's a, there's a heartache to that. And then within a few days, maybe he's already started to hear the rumors that Jesus is living again. That Jesus is walking the earth again. And then one day, Jesus shows up. And Jesus stands before his brother. And again, I, I don't know how it, how it all played out, but I have to imagine just because of the reuniting moments of my brother and I, when we've been disconnected for a while, maybe he says, hey, it's me. How you been? And there's this transformation in James from that moment on where he sees that the things that Jesus said about himself being the son of God were true. And James eventually becomes this incredible pillar of faith in the early church. In Acts chapter 15, which is this really pivotal point in early Christianity, Peter is standing up and he's really challenging the, the, the religious, uh, kind of the things that were accepted about how the gospel is supposed to be presented. And James stands up and defends Peter. And the result of that conversation is that you and I, if you have no Jewish descent, you and I are exposed to the gospel because James stood up for the things that Peter was saying in Acts chapter 15. Later, James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which is this incredible thing for a guy who didn't believe early on. And so then at some point over the next few years, James sits down and he writes, he records this book that you and I are about to walk through in the next few weeks. And in James chapter one, after he introduces himself, he starts with this in James chapter one, verse two. This is what it says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If I were going to write a book to be included in Scripture, I don't know that I would start with this. But James introduces himself and jumps right into this idea that there are tests and trials that you're going to face. And we know this to be a reality. And so James wants us to know right up front that when we face tests and when we face trials, that doesn't mean that we're outside of a relationship of God. It doesn't mean that we're a bad person because we're facing these things. Maybe you've been around someone who tried to convince you that if bad things were happening to you, it was because there was sin in your life. Or if bad things were happening in your life or, or in your family or something was going on, it was because of something you had done wrong. This was, this was permeating the, the theology of that day when James was writing this, even when Jesus was living. There was a conversation one time with some people in Jesus and they said, hey, there's this sick guy. Why is he sick? Was it because of his sin or the sin of his mom and dad? And so this is a thought. But what James is teaching us here in James chapter one is that, listen, when you face tests and trials, don't think there's something wrong. Consider it joy when this happens. There's another place in Hebrews chapter 12 and you don't have to flip there. We're going to go there in a little while. But in Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, 
It says this, for the joy set before him, talking about Jesus, he endured the cross. So there's this a connection again about joy and pain and suffering because Jesus was going to the cross where he would eventually die. We've already referenced it. So nails would pierce his hands. Nails would pierce his feet. He would have a spear or a sword pierce his side. He would have a crown of thorns on his head. And scripture tells us that he considered it joy. No. What scripture says in Hebrews chapter 12 is that for the joy, he endured the cross. I would even possibly rephrase it this way. Instead of for the joy, I would start it with this and say, he endured the cross for the joy set before him. Now, it wasn't the cross that brought about the joy. It was what was set before him. Because what does the cross allow? The cross allows for you and I to have salvation, to experience forgiveness, to experience physical healing. And so I don't think necessarily that Jesus was joyful about the pain that was to come. He was joyful about the result that would come after the pain that he knew he had to walk through. And so when James takes us here in James chapter 1, he's taking us with this idea of consider it pure joy. When tests and trials come in your life, right? If you, if you think that way on a normal basis, good for you. When I think about tests and trials, I think, no, I don't want it. Get it away from me. Why is this happening to me? Why do bad things happen to good people? I'm always including myself in the good people part of that. I don't know if anybody else does that. And so, and so James is really helping us to understand that. So what does he say? He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. He could have said any, but he said many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, the word perseverance here is defined as patient endurance or a capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. Patient endurance or the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. So he says that the testing of your faith produces this patient endurance, or it produces in you the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. I know you can't tell it from looking at me, but I once ran a 5K. I know you don't see a lot of lean muscle here, right? I get that. But I ran a 5K. I was working out at the gym that we were a part of at that point, and I saw this flyer that said, hey, 5K, and it gave the date, and I thought that will be a good goal for me. To, to kind of point my attention toward. And so I'm going to train to run this 5K. Now, I made a couple of errors, many errors. One was signing up. The other error in that was that I trained on a treadmill in the gym in the air conditioning after work. The 5K was run outside on the street at 6.30 in the morning in the chill of the 6.30 in the morning, right? And so I trained and I worked hard and I tried to do the things that I could do to kind of prepare. And then I showed up the morning of the race and I, I started running. And pretty quickly I realized, this is not what I was preparing for. <laughs> Where's my treadmill? <laughs> I need the air conditioner blowing my face here, right? And so, but there, there, here's what happened. And if you've ever done any kind of running at all, and some of you are really, really good runners, I, I'm not. But here, here, here's what happened to me. I started running and, and I didn't know how to pace myself, Right? Because I wasn't running on the treadmill. I wasn't really running a certain distance. I wasn't saying I'm going to run 3.2 miles and stop. I was just saying, hey, I'm going to run for the next 25 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever the time was. So I started running and I didn't have a really good understanding of pace. And, you know, I, I don't know. There's a little bit of alpha male that lives in me. So when I got in line, I got up to the front of the line when we were starting. Well, I don't know if you know who starts at the front of the line. It's all the people that are trying to win the stinking thing, Right. So they take off running. I'm like, I'm going to hang with this guy. And I just take off. I, I don't know my brother, but I believe if, if, if Sports Center is correct, I think he, he lives in Kenya at some point in his life. Because, 
He took off. And I'm thinking, how is he? Can he run that fast the whole time? And there came a moment pretty quickly when my lungs started to really, really feel it. And my legs started to get weak. And the muscles in my body started screaming at me, saying, what are we doing? There's a Wendy's. Stop right there. (laughs) They're not open for five more hours, but we'll wait on them. (laughs) But I kept running because I just don't like to fail at anything. So I kept running. And there was this incredible thing that happened. And if you've ever experienced this in working out or anything else, this is kind of the the experience that I had. I kept running and this incredible thing happened that all of a sudden my lungs stopped aching. I wasn't even sure if they were still working, but they just stopped aching. My legs, which had been weak and throbbing, kind of quit throbbing. And I started running and I kind of felt like I had crossed over this certain threshold of pain or misery or stupidity. I don't know, but I kept running. There was this incredible endurance that kind of kicked in. I think some of it was because of maybe the training I had done. There was a little bit of the treadmill that kind of hung on into my process. Or maybe it's just the way that our bodies are wired, that if we continue beyond that moment where we quit, if we would just continue on a little bit further, we would find that there's a little bit more left in the tank. I don't have a lot of experiences like that because that's the one and only 5K I've ever run. I have stopped at a lot of Wendy's since then. But my favorite part of that definition about perseverance is the second part. The capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. The capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. Here's what I'm afraid of for me and probably for you. I don't think we really know if we have the capacity to continue. The capacity to continue. I don't know if we know what that capacity is because I think sometimes we hit that my lungs hurt, my legs hurt, and we stop. I think we hit that moment where we say, this is not what I signed up for. This doesn't feel good. I'm not really sure how this is all going to work out for my good. What's the payoff to this? This is, this, is, this is harder than I thought, and we quit. And if we would continue a little further, we would see that we actually have a capacity to continue. To bear up under difficult circumstances. My favorite verse in all of Scripture If you come to my office right now, i got a little nameplate my wife got me. It's got my name on it. Right underneath that is a scripture reference, and it says 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's my favorite verse in all the Bible. There's a lot of good ones, but for whatever reason, in my developmental stage, this really connected to me. And this is what it says. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I love that verse because there's so much goodness there. I mean, there is so much goodness there. There are four things that I think we can all hold on to out of this verse. And this is not even really the main point of today. This is just good stuff. Here's the first thing. No temptation except what is common. There's a really cool trick the enemy tries to play on us that says that the things that you're facing, nobody else in the room is facing. The things that you're struggling with, nobody can relate to that. So keep quiet. Don't tell anybody. Don't open up. Don't share. Don't find someone that can hold you accountable to those things. Because if you tell them the things that you're going through, they're going to think you're a terrible person. But what scripture tells me here is that there's no temptation except that which is common to mankind. It doesn't mean that everybody in the room is struggling with the same stuff you are. But it means somebody in the room probably is. 
It doesn't mean that every person that you encounter has the same issues that you maybe are wrestling with, but it means they may have gone through those at some point in their past. There is a commonality to mankind, and that commonality is the struggles, the temptations, the trials that we face. The second thing is that God is faithful. That should be the first thing, but it's the second thing found in this verse. That God is faithful no matter what you're facing. We just sang about it. We just prayed about it. God is faithful. The third thing is that he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, which shoots some of our excuses right in the face. Because when we get in the middle of something, we just go, man, it's just too much for me. It just overcomes me. It's just, it's way more than I can handle. That's a lie. There is no temptation that is more than you can bear. God won't allow it. God won't allow temptation to face you, to come against you beyond what you can bear. And the fourth thing is that he provides a way out so you can endure it. Every single temptation that you face, there's a way out. It may not be the way out that you imagined it to be. It may not be the thing that you thought it was. You may be in the midst of something and think the way out is over there, but it may be over here. The way out may have been before you got into the moment. And now you've got to find a side door. I say it like this, and this is probably the crudest way to say it. But if you struggle to cheat on tests, don't sit next to smart people, right? That's the smart way out. If you sit next to people dumber than you, you will not be tempted to cheat on the test. Because you look and go, okay, that can't be right. He's an idiot. So I'm not going to sit next to that guy, right? If you have other struggles, I mean, if if, if drinking's a struggle for you, then you don't go to places where you know there's alcohol, right? If pornography is a struggle, you don't expose yourself. You don't get into situations where pornography is present and no one else is. If overeating is a struggle, don't go to an all-you-can-eat buffet. You understand what I'm saying? There's a way out. There is a way of escape so that you can endure the temptation that you face. Sometimes tests and trials, they actually develop something in me. You know what my son Branson's struggle with was or was is going to pay off as, he's going to learn how to read, right? The reason that I'm wanting him to to learn, the reason that I want him to figure out that word and to learn those sight words and to read those books is because I understand what he doesn't, that reading's a pretty big deal to be able to succeed in life. And so I want him to help, I want to help him learn those things. The reason that I'm trying to help Cooper learn how to hit off a kid is not because he's going to make it to the major leagues. It's because he has a passion for baseball, and I want to see him succeed, but there's no coach pitch anymore. He's going to have to learn how to hit off a kid, or he's going to have to quit the game. And so I'm just trying to help him leverage his passions and find a way to succeed, so I want to help him. The reason my mom was trying to help her sister learn how to drive a manual transmission is because it was the only option to drive a car for her at that moment. Tests and trials and struggles and temptation even sometimes, they develop something in me. Why does a teacher give tests, right? And the teachers in the room may hate what I'm about to say. Learning and teaching, I get that that teaches, but tests determine if I have developed the skills necessary. If I continue to make a low grade on a test, it tells the teacher, I haven't mastered the skill yet. And I may need further teaching. Because there is something that is being developed in me that I I have to go through trials. I have to go through some tests sometimes. But when I'm in the moment, I'm not thinking that clearly. When I'm in the midst of the test, I'm in the midst of the trial, I'm in the midst of the temptation. I'm not thinking, what is this producing in me? I'm thinking, I want out. I don't want this to happen to me anymore. But the tests and the trials, they produce something in me. 
So when we're tested, when we're facing trials, how do we consider it pure joy? How do we make it through? How do we, how do, we do life knowing that tests and trials are coming? To get there, I want us to flip to one more passage of Scripture. And this is where we're in. This is in Hebrews chapter 12, if you'll flip there with me. Hebrews chapter 12 is the chapter right after Hebrews 11. I'm really smart. That's why I know that. Some of you are flipping. You missed that. That was hilarious. Hebrews 11 is called the Hall of Faith. It's the faith chapter in Scripture. It tells the stories of these incredible people in Scripture who did these incredible things because of their faith. It says, by faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abram did this. By faith. And it just gives all these examples of all the things that were accomplished because people had faith to act and to follow and to obey God. And then we get to the end of Hebrews 11, and then where do we go? Hebrews 12. And this is what it says in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's what happens to us, isn't it? We grow weary and we lose heart. And we give up before we realize the capacity to continue in the midst of difficult circumstances. So how do we not grow weary? How do we not lose heart? I think there's three things found here in Hebrews chapter 12. I don't always do this thing, but I think right here in this passage that we just read, there's three things that you and I need to do in order to persevere. If you got your Bible, you, got, you can scribble it in the margins of your Bible. You can write it on the worship guide you receive. But I think this is important for us. In this blueprint for life, here's some plans. Here's some things that we can all do. The first thing is look around. Look around. It said there, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. You know who he's talking about there? He's talking about all the people that were referenced in Hebrews chapter 11. Therefore, since there are a bunch of people that we just read about who did these incredible things because of faith in God. Therefore, since they surround us. We can do life. We can accomplish the things that God wants us to do. Since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off the things that entangle us and ensnare us and keep us from succeeding. And then let us run with perseverance, the race that's been set before us. We want to look around. We want to find examples of people who have been through what we're going through just so we can know that you can get through what I'm going through. You've got to look around and you've got to find people that while you're in the midst of it or you know you're about to walk into it, you've got bad news from the doctor and you know there's a course of, of action here that the doctor's going to take, the hospital's going to take, the, what they're about to do this. You, you're, it's going to be a little overwhelming. You've got to find people who are on the other side of that treatment and go, okay, if they made it, I can make it. You're about to walk into a dark day of divorce, separation. I don't wish that on anybody. You need to look ahead and see somebody that's on the other side and go, okay, I don't feel it today, but evidently you can make it to the other side of this. I got to find some people around me that have been through it so I know I can make it through. It's what I love about being in a life group. This is not a sales pitch. This is a real testimony. 
We sat in our life group last night. We meet every other Saturday night. Man, we sat there. And the stories that came out of that, I'm not trying to oversell it. They were incredible to me. Somebody sat in that room and said, I had a past. I had some story that was in my life. And I found out that she had the same story. But neither one of us felt like we could tell anybody. And then all of a sudden, one day it just came up and we started telling everybody. And it was like light shined into the dark places that we had been hiding. It was incredible to listen to. People talked about health issues. And there were other people in the room got some health issues going on. There was a parenting thing that came up and other people in the room said, my child had the same issue a couple years ago. You just have to look around and see, are there people in my life who have walked through what I'm going through so that I can know I can make it through? And if you don't have those people, you begin praying right now. God, I need you to send somebody to me that's been through it. I need a mentor. I need a coach. I need a friend that can help me see that I can make it through. It's the reason that support groups work because everybody in the room has faced or is facing the same stuff and we're trying to make it through together. When my mom passed away, my dad, who was a spiritually mature, godly man, he jumped into a grief share group because he wanted to be sitting in the room with other people who had lost somebody that they loved with all of their heart just so he knew in those dark moments that he was not alone. You got to look around. Since we are surrounded by this incredible cloud of witnesses, these people that have walked before us, that they've walked ahead of us, they have by faith done these incredible deeds of obedience to God, I want to look around at their example so that I can know how to make it. It's why me and my wife, we look to parents that have raised kids, and their kids are older than our kids, and we just look ahead and we go... Man, how did they do that? Their kids, they, they love God. They love their parents. They're, they're, try, they're trying to live right. They're, trying to, they're not perfect. That family's not perfect. But we look to examples of people. We say, hey, we want to take this piece of how they did it. We want to model after that. As we try to live godly lives as parents. You got to look around. The second thing you got to do is you got to look ahead. The scripture said, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. You cannot run a race looking backwards. If you try it, you're going to trip and fall. Can't do it. The only way to run effectively is to run looking ahead. Now, you may glance back, see who's on your tail. In my case, not many people were behind me. But you got to keep looking forward, right? you got to run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. It tells me that there's something marked out for me. I mean, when I started that race, I started that 5K, there was already a course charted. I didn't just have to run a random 3.2 miles and then just end up somewhere. Because I can promise you, it would have been the parking lot of somewhere to eat, right? They already had the course marked out. I just had to follow the guide that was there. Same thing is true in your life and in mine. The course of our lives have been marked out. God has a plan for you. God has a future for you. He has a future for me. And so my job is not to create it anew. My job is to find that course by looking ahead, looking to God, looking to the the things that I read in here and running after those things. It's it's the reason that I, I have to help my son a little bit who doesn't understand that reading is important because he can't see that far ahead. But I know it is. And so I'm trying to help him look ahead. I've told this story. I'll tell it again quickly. When my brother was in the seventh grade, he was struggling in math. He was struggling really bad in math. And he felt like it was because the teacher wasn't a good teacher. And my parents had conferences with the teacher. And they just couldn't figure it out. But there were other students struggling in that class. And for whatever reason, the principal gave the option to each individual family that if they wanted their child to exempt out of that math class, they could go and do some other elective for the rest of the year. 
It was a huge issue, huge to do. And my brother thought that was his way out. And I remember the conversation one night when he and my parents were talking. My brother said, hey, can I, can I do this? I want to go take gym instead of seventh grade math. And eventually my dad said to him, no, buddy, you got to stay in. And he said, why? I don't understand. And my dad said these really profound words. He said, because listen, you know what comes after seventh grade math? Eighth grade math. And if you don't get the concepts in seventh grade math, you're going to struggle in eighth grade math. Sometimes you just got to stay in it. Learn everything you can in it. So that when you get there, you know what to do. There's been something developed in you. So you got to look around and you got to look ahead. And the last thing you got to do is look up. You got to look up. Scripture tells us fixing our eyes on Jesus. Jumping ahead a little bit to the last verse. It says, consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know how you don't grow weary and lose heart? You fix your eyes on Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I'm in the midst of something, I struggle to change my focus. I just think about how overwhelmed I am. I think about how busy I am. I think about the things that I'm facing. I I start to play a pity party sometimes. I think nobody's going through what I'm going through. Nobody's having to face what I'm facing. And I'm just focused on that. I'm focused on me and my hurts and my pains and my stuff. And I believe that an incredible truth out of this passage that will get us out almost every single time is just to change what we're looking at. I believe that you worship your way out sometimes. You know why? Because your attention takes this new focus off of you and off of your stuff onto God. We, we, we take our eyes off of our stuff and our problems and the people that are our problems and we turn our eyes to Jesus. We consider him. We magnify the Lord, which is a phrase I heard a lot when I was growing up in worship services and I couldn't figure out how do you make God bigger than he already is. But when you magnify something, you don't actually change its state. You change your perspective, right? So I don't change how big God is. I change what I'm focused on. And I turn my attention from whatever's going on in my life and I focus and go, oh my goodness, he really is that big. I mean, my my stuff, it's important, but maybe he's more important than that. Maybe as I look for a way out, he has promised me, according to 1 Corinthians 10, that he always gives a way out. And maybe when I can't see it, I got to quit looking around me and I just got to look up and go, oh, it's over here. Okay, I'm going to go this way then and find the way out. Sometimes it's just looking ahead, looking up and just keep moving ahead because the only way out is through it. I got to look around. I got to find people in my life. I got to live in community. I can't live in isolation. I've got to look ahead. I got to focus on where I'm headed, that God has charted this course for me. And I've got to look up and find him in the midst of all this stuff. The reality for all of us I say it's a reality because I really believe that this is the absolute truth. But in the midst of the moment, sometimes it's hard to find it. Here's the reality, and this is going to be a little confusing for some of us. We're going to kind of work through it. Is that tomorrow, today, becomes yesterday. When I get to tomorrow, everything that I'm facing today, when I get over there and I look back on here, it's actually yesterday. When I get to tomorrow, I'm actually looking back on what I think is the most important thing in the world 
It's behind me now. I just got to make it to tomorrow. I've just got to look ahead and look up and kind of pull those close to me who can speak life into me. And I just got to keep moving so that I can get to tomorrow and look back on the things that overwhelm me today. Tomorrow, today, becomes yesterday. It doesn't feel like that today. Today it feels like I'm not going to make it. Today it feels so overwhelming. Today it feels like there is no way out. But guess what? Tomorrow's coming. And if I can make it through today, if I can persevere, if I can look up to him, if I can see that maybe he is forming something in me, I'm going to find myself in tomorrow looking back on today. And here's this really cool thing that happens in this community of faith. I'm going to meet someone tomorrow that needs to know they can make it through their today. And I get to go, it's possible. It really is possible. I didn't think I could make it either. But God got me here. He helped me through it. You can too. Perseverance. It's this foundational piece of living life. Because we face all these incredible things. And if we get stuck focused on today, if we think today is the most important thing, we lose sight of the larger story and the larger picture. Because here's here's a truth for us. God was writing a story long before you and I got here. And should he choose not to return, he's continuing to write a story that will take place long after we're gone. Today is just one moment in this larger timeline of the story of God. So I want to push through today. I want to learn all I can. I want to surround myself with people who speak life into me. I want to chart the course and follow the course that God's laid out for me. And I want to turn my attention to him. Focus on him. Because tomorrow, today, becomes yesterday. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. God, we thank you so much for the reality, the truth that you are ever-present with us. That you're enough. That the things that we're facing that we don't know how we're going to make it, we can make it because of you. We can make it because you have shown to us that we can make it. You've revealed that to us in our own life, and our own story, and we can see it in the stories of the great cloud of witnesses around us. Help us to surround ourselves with people who speak to your goodness, who speak life and not death. God, let us find in people around us the strength to keep moving, to keep going forward, to keep moving ahead. And God, let us refocus our attention off of our issues and onto you off of our problems and onto your power that can help us make it through With nobody looking around right now every head's bowed every eye's closed I just want to know if I can pray for you if you would say to me today Jeremy my today is overwhelming me me or my family my marriage my job my money my kids my parents something is going on that i just need to i just need god to show me i need the, the course i need to keep moving ahead i need people to surround me to help me see that it's possible i need to refocus my attention on god whatever it is but my today is really 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 overwhelming to me and i need this perseverance would you just lift your hand there are a lot of hands going up you can put them right back down 
Now, if you don't feel comfortable with this, that's okay. But if you lifted your hand, if you would just stand up right where you're at. If you don't feel comfortable, that's okay. We're just going to pray together. I'm not going to have you move. I'm not going to have you come to the front. We just want to pray today that God would strengthen those who need it. I want us to pray together. If you're sitting nearby, you don't have to get up. If you'll just stretch a hand, if you want to stand up and just surround them, put your arms on them, your arm around, that's totally fine to do that. We're just going to pray for these folks that stood up today. God, again, we thank you that you are a forever God, that you love us, that you have the power to help us make it and to live. That God, the tests and trials are not always bad things. They could be good things for us. We consider it joy because of the things that it's producing in us. And so, God, now I pray for every person that lifted their hand, both those that stood and those that didn't. God, there were people that lifted their hand to signify that there's something going on, that they need you. They need a greater awareness of you or they need others to surround them. And so, God, right now, I pray for these folks. I pray, God, that you would strengthen them, that you would grow them and grow their faith. That, God, you would help them to see you in the midst of their struggles. God, we thank you that we can persevere And that perseverance is actually the the production. It's what is produced in us as we continue moving. We, We become mature and complete as we push through. We push toward our tomorrow that's found in you. In Jesus' name we pray.